right. Well, hello, Austin. How's it going? Good. Does anybody mind if we start a few minutes early so we have the optionality to either end a few minutes early or have extra time for QA? Giving the people what they want. All right. Now, folks, as a professional futurist, I feel like it's my uh, responsibility to let you know that the, the messed up date on the slide is not a typo. That's, it's from the future. <laughs> it's properly from the, no, it's a full-on typo. And thanks to my wonderful team for pointing it out right before I go on. Just the energy I need to boost my confidence uh, as we get started. So, folks, my name's Mike. It's an absolute flipping pleasure to be with you. Do I see Andreas Forslund back there? No, I don't. Sorry. You look just like somebody I know, sir. Thank you. <laughs> um, a little bit about me. I live outside of Chicago, I, uh, which right off the bat, I'm super grateful to be here. It's a full 12 degrees warmer. Uh, secondly, um, I'm an inventor turned investor turned professor, which is a, Alfredo. Hello, sir. Um, I worked with Alfredo. <laughs> 15 years ago in a technology labs organization where we cooked up newfangled inventions for enterprise problems for which enterprise software just wouldn't do. And there I like to say I learned the art of what's possible. And then after a short stint as a CTO at a national not-for-profit, I co-founded and ran a venture capital firm where for eight years I sat on the other side of the table from world-changing entrepreneurs, said no to 4,885 of them, and said yes to 15. And we still mostly got it wrong. <laughs> but there I like to think that I learned the art of the profitable. And there's a difference between what's technically possible and what's, what's right, uh, you know, practically profitable. And it's at that intersection that my team and I try to work at Deloitte in making heads or tails out of what's new and next in tech. And so when we do this work together, when we think about the future, I like to say people hear that I'm a futurist, they lean. And here's what I mean. They either lean in like this, they go, oh, that sounds fantastic. Or they leaned back and they said, I'm pretty sure this is snake oil. But what I'll tell you is, it's neither, right? I come to you neither with a crystal ball, nor with a time machine of the hot tub or DeLorean varietal. Rather, I come to you with a sense of pattern recognition, things we're actually seeing in market at our global clients today that portend what's likely to be possible and subset profitable over the next 20, 25 years. And so that said, let's start with what I like to call a negative role model. As recently as four or five years ago, my teammates and I at Deloitte would present the future of technology with this. And as thrilled and flattered as I am that many of you are taking a picture of it, remember, this is like the before picture in the infomercial. Right? This is the guy fumbling with the blender, not the new blender. But let's do a little audience participation. Let's, let's popcorn the myriad ways that this picture disappoints you. And all answers are right answers, because my wife, who's a marriage and family therapist, says feelings cannot be wrong. 
So, so what, what, how does this bum somebody out? Show of hands. Yes, sir. No prioritization. Right, it's just kind of a blob of blobby stuff. Yes, sir. Can't read it. I chart. Right, and even with a higher res projector, you still couldn't read it. Other complaints? I'm here for catharsis. Um, Ma'am. I don't know why they exist. What needs they serve? Right, why do they exist? What needs do they serve? Uh, 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 yes? I don't know how they affect my life or my business. Right, context-free, and um, the icons don't really have a key either. This is more complaints that I usually get. We're in trouble. Yes? Back on society. Impact on society, right. So what, now what, why exactly? Well folks, and in the words of my 16-year-old son, this slide transition is fire. <laughs> it turns out that to be a proper futurist, per my 25 years lived experience as a geek turning geezer, you need to be a bit of a historian. Does anybody know what this might be a picture of, excepting the people on the front right who've seen this talk 614 times? All answers are not right answers, but they'll still be fun answers. Yes, sir, or ma'am? Reading machine? Weaving machine, like a loom. No, but a common answer that usually makes the histogram. Machine. Coding machine, like a decoding machine, Turing, the bombs, Bletchley Park, 1940-something. No, but close. Getting warmer. Yes, sir? Music. Music, sort of a kicked-up automatic piano of some sort, steampunk harpsichord. No. That, that was ChatGPT. <laughs> well done. He said that was ChatGPT that gave him the answer. <laughs> Folks, it's, it's, actually, it's actually that. And when I was in seventh grade, Calumet City, Illinois, southeast side of Chicago, my science teacher, Mr. Kevin McMillan, looked us all in the face and he lied right to us. He said, you know, the first computer was ENIAC, New Jersey, 1946. Nope. Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace 1843. What? 100 years earlier. Now, I told you I was a VC. And I was at Y Combinator Demo Day. Every, show of hands, who here knows Y Combinator? Right? These self described Harvard for startups. And the way they do their demo days is they had 80 Series A startups pitching back to back, 90 seconds each and I needed a break. So I walk out to the lobby, I got my Mountain Dew, I got my little plate of Cheez-Its, and I come across this thing in all of its full-size recreated glory. It's the size of a Volkswagen. And better still, they had the liner notes written by Babbage and Lovelace. And what was so great was the way they described their creation, they used the emerging technology language of the era, which was agricultural technology, first industrial revolution, farm tech, which spoke to me as a Chicagoan. I was thrilled. But to read it, they said, 
we propose a store which will hold the arithmetic units much like a silo might hold grain. And I thought, well, that's cool. It's like a database. We further propose a mill which will process the arithmetic results like a reaper might turn flour from wheat. It's okay, it's like a CPU. And the reader, to spare you more bad David Attenborough, <laughs> the reader stamped little clay tablets to make sense of it to us, to us civilians, to us muggles. And I thought, wait a minute. They're talking about what I learned in 1998 was the then revolution that was the three-tiered web architecture. Like, wait a minute, what do you mean the N-tier web architecture with separate UI database and compute isn't a revelation? It's 180 years old. And so hunches do not research make. So I come running back to my team. It was like, gang, we have a hypothesis to test. Specifically, I think the whole freaking history of information technology is a series of evolutions not revolutions over these three tracks. And so, doing what Deloitte does, we wrote a monster book report. 300 endnotes, 160-something pages, in conjunction with the World Economic Forum, official, super mega official. And we proved the hunch. And the hunch was that Babbage and Lovelace's Reader Mill and Store did in fact give way to Mr. McMillan's ENIAC 1946 New Jersey, right? People in white lab coats feeding punch cards to a machine the size of this room. And then I remember like a flashbulb memory, my dad who worked at a taxi company, normally came home with dirty hands and arms. He, he would wash himself up. Dad, where are you going? It's nighttime. I'm going to night school. Why? learning computers. Why? Because that's where the jobs are. Well, but don't you need a PhD for that? Nah, right? You need night school to learn COBOL to work on databases, rows and columns, on machines the size of smaller than a Volkswagen, bigger than a PC. Then I jump into the workforce, right? A few years later, right? I don't even need to know how to read. Because we got icons, we got point and click, we got GUIs, right? And now we're looking at patterns in the data, descriptive analytics, right? Metadata, the understanding of why things happen the way they did. And interestingly, the machines are now sitting on our desks and some of them in the basement. Client server, okay. But I don't live at the end of history. And so I start hiring a team of relatively younger practitioners. And what are they doing? They don't even have good posture, right? Because their user interface is this, right? And, and, and you know, whereas my generation didn't need night school, we had dummies books. Remember dummies books? Right? Learn Java in 21 days took me only 26. But here's the thing, right? The mobile generation, this stuff's supposed to be self-revealing. I don't need a manual. What's a manual? And now we're looking at patterns that project, that predict what's next in the data. 
right? data science, predictive analytics. And good news, the machines largely live in someone else's basement. Because as I tell my clients on the reg, there is no cloud. It's just somebody with a much bigger basement. <laughs> now, this is supposed to be talking about the future. Why is this guy going on about the past? Because what you find is this rubric is a lens, a map, to make heads or tails out about what's next, and specifically the subset of what's next that matters. Remember I joked earlier about this looks like snake oil. This is helping us inoculate ourselves against snake oil. And so when we hear about virtual reality, the tendency is to lump it and say, ah, oh, goodness, not another, oh, gosh. Really, the buildup was for this? No, the buildup is to recontextualize headset mania into a recognition that maybe big clunky headsets are the eight track tape mini disc gateway connector to a leaner, meaner, cleaner future where we get beyond the proliferation and tyranny of all the freaking screens. This room right now, one, two. I don't know about y'all, but I brought about four glowing 16 by nine pixel beds. Looking around the room, I see you folks have probably on average about 1.5 each. You ever look at a picture from 1986? You say, look at the carpeting. Is that a Rubik's cube? Oh my gosh, it's so old fashioned, it's anachronistic. People are gonna look at pictures of 2022. They're gonna say, look at all those screens. It was peak screen. They didn't know it yet because they hadn't found a better way. The point is, virtual and augmented reality is interesting not because it's shiny, capital-intensive bling, but because it's simpler. And if you were tracking that brief history of the future, simple has an undefeated track record since 1842. Simple only ever wins. And when I watch my 10-year-old play virtual this and augmented that and Beat Saber this and Gorilla Tag that, anybody ever play Gorilla Tag? Surprisingly awesome. But the point is, it's a simpler computing modality. Because now you're not even fooling with screens and rectangles, you're in it. Now, the unsung hero of virtual reality is the part you literally can't see. It's the conversational voice bit. <clears throat> Working with our clients as we do, we learned an interesting thing. You know who's the least likely professional role to use a customer relationship management system like but not limited to Salesforce? Who's the least likely professional role to use something like Salesforce? The sales professional. Because sales professionals are famously like doing deals, having lunch, meeting folks, shaking hands, doing the sales thing. Well, what they're starting to realize is that what if you change the computing modality from hands-on keys to vocal update when you're in the car on your way to the lunch? Suddenly, all these smart speakers in our life feel less like a gimmick being done to us and more like a recognition that from a business perspective, there have to be more computing modalities than hands-on keys. 
We've seen cooks working in enterprise kitchens who for years had tablets and keyboards so they could order more carrots or potatoes or whatever. They never used it until they had the ability to say, order more carrots, right? Just like some of us do in our kitchen. Now, on the information front, anybody want to take a guess at what's new, what's bleeding edge, what's the zeitgeisty thing right now in business as regards the information layer? <coughs> dun, 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 the mother of all buzzwords. It's AI, but here's the deal with AI. One of my heroes, Larry Tesler. Larry Tesler was an R&D scientist at Xerox Park. He invented copy-paste. And I don't know if you get much more credible than that. <laughs> I mean, straight talk. This guy's going straight to geek Cooperstown. But he gave the best definition I've ever heard of AI. He said, you know, at the end of the day, AI is whatever we haven't done yet. And it gives me goosebumps every time I say it. It gives me extra goosebumps watching like 200 and something of you with your phones up because here's the deal. In 1996, AI meant daring to play Grandmaster Garry Kasparov in three matches of chess. And I had a professor at that time, an undergrad, Professor V. And he stood up there, and I'll never forget it. It's a 100-person lecture room. He goes, hey, there is no way. No way, IBM defeats Kasparov. He's a grand master. I said, okay, you're the prof. Next day, headlines. IBM defeats Gary Kasparov two matches to one. What did Professor V say? He said, ah, but he's not really AI. See what he did there? He moved the goalpost dismissing yesterday's unachievable miracle as no big deal because it's still not human. And so, 11 years later, I was watching this on TV. Anybody remember this one? Right? I distinctly remember sitting on the couch and looking to my bride and saying, Barb, it's not really AI. Right? Because all the news articles were like, well, it's kind of connected to the internet, and it reads Wikipedia, and blah, 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 blah. And then five years ago, when Google comes and gets, or DeepMind more specifically, gets Lisa Dole in the game of Go, the same spate of articles moving the goalpost. Is it really AI? The point is, the goalpost has been moving since 1956. AI used to mean quadratic equations. Now what does it mean? Digital paintings and poetry. We'll get to that in a few minutes. It's not about what is or isn't AI. It's about the recognition that there's always something new in mechanical minds. And so more constructive than artificial intelligence is the relatively nerdy phrase, cognitive automation. What's that? Well, this is what we're seeing as the state of the art in business right now. In business, AI is showing up for the first time less as a pesky Monday morning quarterback critic and more as a helpful, quiet, deferential co-pilot. In this picture, for those of you who know the reference, doesn't need a lot of uh, sort of explanation, but 
I remember distinctly five years ago being in boardrooms where people would say, yeah, we put in this business intelligence system. It basically yells at me for doing it wrong. <laughs> Every day. And those who've lived it, right? Like, yep, that was the laugh of someone who's been through one of those implementations. <laughs> like C-3PO to Han Solo, right? The odds of successfully surviving the asteroid field are 9 million to 1. And what did Han say? Shut him up. <laughs> Today's AI showing up more like Chewy a quiet guide on the side who's getting you out of harm's way. Robotic process automation, right? system support, controls automation. Typically, co-pilot, not pilot, as much as we yak about robots coming for jobs, and we'll get to this in a bit, it's really robots helping with tasks. right? And they're very still much supporting the humans who are running most shows. Now. I was in Denmark two weeks ago, and I was meeting with a company who you can probably infer through the context clues on the slide. And this gentleman, Henrik, literally asked me at one point, he said, have you seen this? I said, what's that? He said, we have not created this tool. We are not sure we approve of this tool, but it tells you everything you can build by taking a picture of your kid's pile. <laughs> and then he literally freaking says, is this really AI? <laughs> I was like, Henrik, none of it's AI. And all of it's AI. What matters, man, is that it's merely very useful. Who here has kids or has ever been a kid? <laughs> Who here has gone through the mugs game of trying to optimally organize and store your Legos? <laughs> Who here concedes the business case and utility of never having to do that again? Doesn't matter if it's an AI. It's the most useful thing ever. And so the point is, if we can automate human discernment and decision making, right? if we can computerize cognition and furrowed brows and pains in the butt, then we're doing the right stuff. Now, on the computation layer, the story of the moment, distributed slash decentralized platforms. Now, that's a pretty heavy mouthful of words, because if I said the B word, blockchain, people are going to start leaving. Like I'll see that door back there open, like, I'm good, thanks. No crypto winner for me. <laughs> but here's the scoop. 25 years as a geek, I ain't never seen a tech with an image problem quite like blotchy. Right? Think of the origin story. You, you couldn't write that in Hollywood. You couldn't write that with your, with your app. Right? A pseudonymous founder creates a dark tool to buy dark drugs on the dark web. Like anything but enterprise grade, right? And so it went through this five-year period where nobody talked about it because it felt dirty. And then it went through a five-year period, the proliferation of pilots. Who here has been part of an organization that did the dreaded blockchain pilot? Yes, right? I've talked to so many CIOs, CTOs, they're like, well, we're going to track lettuce from Los Angeles to Cleveland with a blockchain. And I go, why? Like, because I was told it was interesting. <laughs> why don't you use a database? I'm honestly not sure. 
And here's why. Most of the pilots tend to be pilots internal to an organization for which a database will do. Right? A database will do because if you're part of the four walls of an organization, you just got to trust your own master data, your own information. Blockchain makes sense when you don't trust the people in the ecosystem. Blockchain makes sense when you've got left versus right, up versus down, you versus me, trying to figure out who's going to be in charge of master data management. And the old answer was consortias, joint ventures, standard bodies. The emerging answer is cryptography. We don't have to trust each other. We'll trust the math. This example here, we spoke to a jeweler out of Hong Kong called Chow Tai Fook. I talked to their CIO. This gentleman, I kid you not, was in a dark wooded room that I'm convinced was built to model Don Corleone's room <laughs> from, from the Godfather series. I mean, it, it, and it was all over Zoom too, so you know, very, very kind of interesting vibe. And he says to me, and he sounded nothing like Don Corleone, but let's have fun with it. He goes, what do you know about jewelry? <laughs> I said, very little, sir. I'm sector agnostic. He goes, okay. In my business, I mine natural diamonds. But I got two problems. And I'm starting to back up in my chair. Even though it's over Zoom, I'm worried. What's the problem? He goes, on the left, he's got lab-grown synthetic diamonds, which from a future world standpoint sounds pretty cool. But you can see from his standpoint, sounds like margin erosion. Then on the right, he says, blood diamonds. You don't want to know about those. I says, I don't. I've seen the movie. I know I don't. <laughs> he said, and here's the good part. He said, the web 1.0 way to solve this problem, which they employed 20 years ago, was a tab on their website that said, about us. And you click on about us, and what did it say? Chow Tai Fook has been a trusted purveyor of finely cut stones for 160 years. Well, they sound great. But then they had to move to a Web 2 solution because people stopped caring what we said about ourselves. And the Web 2 solution was Foursquare reviews, Google reviews, Facebook reviews, Yelp reviews, all the things. And that was interesting until people figured out how to weaponize and fractionalize anger and mob mentality in the form of pay-for-click outrage. He said, so they turned to Web3. In their particular case, they laser engraved each diamond with a serial. Why? They would co-sign the color clarity carrot and cut of each stone into a public Ethereum blockchain co-signed by the GIA. Why? Because if you were ever doubting what you were looking at, you could look it up in this cryptographic chain and say, oh, here's the new 21st century method of appraising a diamond. And so what was so interesting in that story and in that pilot, and similarly in a story being done right now in Africa to track the provenance of cocoa beans to make sure that children are not used in child labor scenarios, is that the reporting doubles as the recording. That the provenance, the following, is interesting in large part because this is a trustless environment that requires a trustless store of master data. 
enter the blockchain. Now, you'll notice none of that is about cryptocurrency, none of that is about NFTs, none of that's about none of that. It's really about a recognition that maybe none of us is as trustworthy as all of us. Now, folks, we still ain't talked about the future. But we're at the spot we ought to be, which is just about halfway through. And at the critical moment to realize three critical, super-duper takeaways of this journey to the future. The first, emerging tech progression follows enduring trajectories. The blizzard of buzzwords that I foisted on you at the opening is not the solution that's part of the problem. What we need is an understanding of how these things are changes from their predecessors of degree, not kind. And we need to shed some of the hyperbole and the freak out that all of this stuff is uniformly heroic or villainous. Because in large part, this stuff continues to be tools that are ever greater force multipliers, right? But they're still tools. Yeah. Two, and this is big, the names are fungible, squishy. They don't matter. But the concepts sure as heck do. The concepts certainly do. I've wasted so many discussions with people saying, is it really a metaverse? Is it more like a, an unlimited verse, like an omniverse? It's a multiple verse. It's a verse of verses. <laughs> it's like, yeah, man. It, and it's simple. Right? right? And on and on and on. Semantics will ruin your day. And here's how you can tell when a technology is still not ready for prime time. It tends to have a really long name. Think about it. Before it was cloud, it was massively parallel multi-grid computing. And then we realized, now nah, you know, it's cloud, man. And that's all to say that as you start to see the syllables contract, it's probably an indication that you're turning that corner from tech to toy to tool, from what's possible to what might darn well be profitable. But then here's the biggie. This is the humility and I'm trying to remain humble with 250 phones up because you're making my day. <laughs> but here's the humility. We, team, we don't live at the end of history, right? We feel like it's our job to get it right forever. But newsflash, so did our folks, and so did their folks. And, and to me, the truth that sets me free in my work is the recognition that my teams, as, as amazing as they are, and they're amazing, amazing innovations are going to be our successors' legacy application renewal headaches. Right? That, that today's, oh, wow, is going to be tomorrow's core modernization line item. But that's OK, because it means we're building the next brick in this wall, the next link in this chain. And that's our job, right? is to be constructive. right? Not to be heroic, but to bring utility. Now, let's get on with it. Candyland, what's coming next? Where's this all headed? Well, as we've established, interactions have only ever gotten simpler. Simple has only ever won. Don't bet against simple. Information systems have only gotten smarter. Right? And computation systems have only ever gotten more abundant. The first two super intuitive. Here's what I mean about abundant. Who here 
and this is obligatory in any future emerging tech thing, show of hands, who's heard of Moore's Law? Sure. Right? Computing power doubles, costs have every 18 months. That was very exciting, and it got us through right about here until the nanometer GPU-CPU construction process was such that physics started to meaningfully get in the way. And remember about 15 years ago, it was all gigahertz, like 4.7 gigahertz. And then one day companies sprung a whole new noun on us. It's like cores, it's six cores. What's a core? Well, it's a four gigahertz machine, but there's six of them, <laughs> right? It was about virtualization, parallelization, the recognition that we didn't need a bigger thing we could line up six things, and then eight and 18 and all the rest. And then the cloud, let's line up a million of them, right? And so we went from miniaturization to virtualization. And that story I told you about blockchain, right, that gets to a third act of decentralization, right? I had a teammate last week in one of our tech talks say, you know what's interesting is how we're starting to see people use casually the word the global computer when they're referring to Ethereum. And I thought that was so interesting, not because I'm pro or con any given chain or tech. It was because it was this realization that properly decentralized, you can throw a job onto the, the computer, the global computer. And isn't that really what the idea has been about, right? Like I need, I need MIPS, instructions per second. I'll run this one on the computer. So what's next? Well, over the coming handful of years, what we're seeing emerging as regards interaction is an idea that MIT, ourselves, a number of other large organizations are swirling around this term. And remember, the terms don't matter. But the concept is ambient experience. Here's the idea. Talked about all these screens in our life earlier. I was at my daughter's 13th birthday party. I was at a hockey rink, which is the kind of stuff we do in Chicago. Before they could go out there, they all had a hand in their phones, right? And I was literally holding this stack of phones, and I put it down on the table. You've never heard a cacophony like 13, 13 year old girls' phones. All wow. Like R2D2 would blush. <laughs> and call it ESG, call it sustainability, call it, call it too much is too much. It occurred to me that this can't be the scalable way forward, all these freaking devices. I ran a search on my home network a couple months back. I saw I had 86 connected devices at home. And I felt pretty wasteful, right? But then it occurred to me, I asked my friends, how many do you got? And they, they were in the ballpark. And so too might many of you be, right? Between the Roombas, the smart switches, the light bulbs, the iPad, the other iPad, the iPad you forgot about under the couch, <laughs> right? In a world where everything has an IP address, what you start to get to is something that reminds me of my grandma, my grandma Funk. God bless her, she passed away in 2006. But she was an Irish Catholic lady. She had 17 grandkids. 
and south side of Chicago, we all had samey two-syllable names. And when she tried to address us, she'd be like, Mikey, Marty, Charlie, Tommy, God, you. <laughs> and it was adorable, and she would usually get there. But it's starting to feel like that with this proliferation of devices in our life. Which one do I ask which thing for and when? And that's just these obelisks in the kitchen. What about the things on your wrist? What about the things in your pocket, your laptop, your car? It's too much. What it reminds me of. <laughs> I was told this would be a higher, higher order group, and you got there without my help. That was good. Right? See, see the, the interplay of black and white vertical obelisk. Yes. That's, that's what's good. This is, this is good. This is the AP class. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay, I got you. This is why we had the extra six minutes up front. There you go. Picture A, picture B. Here's, here's where I'm going with this, right? As, as my uh, PR professional shivers, where's he going with this? This is not a call for servant culture, right? This is nothing to do with neo-Victorian vibes. This is a recognition that in the TV show, Downton Abbey, good old Lord Grantham had a huge staff as well. But the way he worked with the staff wasn't to say, hey, chauffeur, get the car ready. Hey, valet, get my clothes ready. Hey, chef, do this. He said, I'm going to city. Right? And the team would delegate and manage. And more importantly, they knew he was likely to go to the city, so they would proactively get things ready. This is the future of human-computer interaction. Proactive, assistive, ambient, ethereal, ubiquitous cloud of helpfulness that gets your needs met, much like Jarvis would get Tony's needs met. Tony wouldn't say, I'm falling from a building, please help. Right? Jarvis would recognize, you look like you need help. Right? Now here's the scoop. <laughs> Right. I should just quit while I'm ahead. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. There's this old trope in VC land, like, being early is the same as being wrong. No, it ain't. You were right, and you were right first. Microsoft was onto this with Clippy. Looks like you're trying to write a letter. Yep. But with my 2K of RAM and minuscule hard disk, I don't no much else, right? Well, now we do. Cloud-based compute and cloud-based data are such that we can be meaningfully proactive and helpful, and we're going to start seeing that in droves. What's next in information? Exponential AI. What's that mean? Here's what that means. The stuff that computers can do today in a business tend to show up as classification, automation, prediction, and essentially the deployment of things that we might have historically hired a young STEM graduate to do. What we're starting to see is the emergence of what I like to call computational creativity. 
the wheel turning, as my colleague Benny Siebold likes to say, from classification to creativity. Turning from pattern detection to pattern emulation. Now, we hear about this all the freaking time. And as a, as a futurist, as a geek, I remember a year ago being with a client and saying, behold, a general purpose transformer, in this case, creating Shakespearean sonnets, and the room would sit like this. Because dirty secret, I don't think anybody's really all that into Shakespeare. <laughs> right? People would just be like, I, why, why does this matter? And then someday, right around Thanksgiving, to quote Joker from one of the Batmans, everybody lost their mind. Because the exact same technology stack that could recreate convincing Shakespearean sonnets was suddenly thrown into a ask it something and it'll answer you rubric. So I asked it something, something timely. I said, at 3.45 PM, is there anywhere that serves fair trade coffee and pastries or, you know, beer? And I don't know about y'all, but we're going to be apparently at something called Halcyon, which has fair trade coffee and beer in 30 minutes. The takeaway is this. The technology isn't brand, 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 bleeding edge new. But what we're waking up to, frankly, what white collar professionals and executives are waking up to in a big way is that the kind of stuff that they've been doing is itself, to a degree, partially automatable. Now, this lends itself to extreme hyperbole, right? But check this out. This is an example of a generative AI tool working as a pair programmer, helping you find, debug, improve your code, and then the cherry on top for me is it comments the code. Because if anybody's ever worked as a developer or a geek, like, nobody comments their code like they should. And like, thanks, robot. Right? Why does this matter? Because people, I'll talk to people all day, and they'll say, that thing doesn't develop as, better, as, as well as our best developer. It's not as good as Janet. And I'll say, yeah, but I bet it's better than your worst developer. They say, that poet isn't as good as Keats. I say, I bet it's good enough for a greeting card. <coughs> They say that painting, right, my favorite, this is the one that opened the dam back last April. Like, show me a sea otter in the style of Vermeer. <laughs> I love it. I was, there when, I was there when that showed up on Twitter. I'm like, well, universe is changing, got to go. But it's not whether it's better than Vermeer. It's whether it's better than your, 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 your legacy system, right? The standard here isn't supremacy. It's utility. And this generation, and by that I include everybody in this room, like people born after 1900. People born after 1900 were raised to think computers were perfect. They were calculators. If they made a mistake, it was human error. But AIML models are different. They're probabilistic. And so the way they need to be judged is less about right, wrong, black, white, more about is it useful? Now. Much like Shakespearean sonnets, I showed this to a boardroom of a large paint and coatings company you've all heard of the day it released. And they say, that's interesting. And I say, no, 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 check it out. And there's always that one guy or gal 
who like trolls the system, right? And they typed in all that stuff to which the other cynical gal says, oh, I don't see the propeller. <laughs> which like, by the way, pro tip, something about generative AI I've seen is that it's actually a Dorian Gray funhouse reflection of the person using the tool. <laughs> Kelly and I were at a gathering of uh, rarefied executives who shall remain safely nameless. And I was like, it's algorithmic computational creativity. You can ask it anything. Ask it, ask it, it'll paint you anything. And these people would come up to it like, show me a sunset. And I'm like, don't you want to see like a malevolent fleet of Cheetos attacking raccoons underwater? And they're like, show me a sunset on the beach. <laughs> and, and, you, but, and it's hilarious, but the truth behind the truth is that, that what a boring white paper might call the rising importance of prompt engineering is actually the rising importance of having good ideas. Like, you've got a magical box that'll do anything you want. What do you want it to do? Remember that scene from The Incredibles? Something amazing, I guess. Be more specific. We got specific in our Deloitte Tech Trends, our annual compendium of what's new and next in tech globally. We walked this talk. We said to our creative team, go ahead. I'm the last one to stop you from getting this QR code. My boss is going to be very pleased. All right, we'll follow. We'll get this to you on the back, back side, too. We said to our creative team, we said, hey, we'd like to use generative AI to do the art for all the chapters in the report. And what we learned, everybody, in walking this talk and drinking our own champagne, as it were, was that this is every bit a change management problem and not a technology problem. Because our creatives, this great team of artists and designers, their first reaction, it was like the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. Right? Their first reaction was, I want no robot doing my stuff. And then a week into it, it was, man, look at all this stuff. And then by the third week, it was, this is like the new Photoshop. I'm never not using this again. Because what they recognized was this elevated their work from craft to concept. And they took a creative, constructive approach to it, saying, this isn't doing my job. It's freeing me to do better jobs. Supposedly, this is a Bill Gates quote. And I haven't been able to trace that for sure, but that success means having better problems to solve. This isn't some executive wave it away, like me with my cufflinks, like wave it away. This is me saying it's on us as leaders to work relentlessly to figure out what are those better order jobs, those more important problems we're solving. Because you're going to find that in a world where a lot of the muck gets more automated, we got to work on more uniquely human problems. That same codings company, the fellow made a joke to the head of creative right in the meeting. He said, you know, Janet, like, your whole room design practice is going to be uh, in threat. You know, and they kind of chuckled in gallows humor. And then Benny here and my team, he, he created room designs in like six minutes for a talk he gave last week. And I thought to myself, if Janet plays that opportunity right, she can create a design your own space automagically on our website capability and elevate even quicker. So I'm not trying to be fey. I'm not trying to be unreasonably optimistic. I'm trying to say, look at the headroom that's created by not having to do this stuff. 
Here's another example we found. This one's from NASA. This is a piece to a rocket ship. Anybody here ever see the original Ghostbusters? I'm convinced that movie's the best startup documentary ever made. Right? Think about it, right? Like down on their luck, bold idea, a little bit of venture funding. It's slow, they ramp, then they're too busy, scale up, it's great. Anyway, there's this throwaway scene where they're walking through the library and they see these books stacked super vertical. And a lot of people don't remember this scene, but I love it because Dan Aykroyd takes out his ghost detector. He's like, wow, look at the parakinetic energy. And then Bill Murray in his classic Bill Murray way goes, yeah, no, no human would stack books like that. <laughs> Here's where I'm going. No human would design a rocket ship part like that because humans have preconceptions, orthodoxies, a penchant for symmetry, right angles, right? A generative AI designed that part. A generative AI designed these parts for NASA. And a NASA engineer, Ryan McClellan, said, it looks alien and weird. We are talking to him. He said, but once you see them in function, it, it, it really makes sense. Right? No human would stack books like that. Now, the reason I say exponential AI and not generative AI is because much like conversational voice is the unsung hero of virtual reality, affective or emotion AI is the emergent unsung hero of exponential AI. We hear about gen AI a lot and understandably so. Robots painting and writing poetry, OMG. But what about robots simulating and emulating human emotion? Not like Hollywood shows us to fall in love, right? But rather because maybe to a machine, emotional intelligence is just another form of data. There's a one-way video interviewing kit delivered by HireVue a couple years ago. If anybody's ever done video interviewing, and I guess since we've all lived through the plague, We've all done video interviewing. They had a kit. They've since taken it off market because it was not ready for myriad reasons involving bias and myriad, myriad reasons. But that kit would look not just at what you said during the interview, but the pauses, which connote gravitas and conscientiousness. The musicality in your voice, which connotes an extroversion and an empathy and a willingness to be in front of customers. Or a monotone cadence that suggests you would do well in the basement. <laughs> right? The raise of your brows, right? The sparkle in your eye. To us, that's uniquely human. To a machine, it's just more training data. There's a lot that could go wrong with that. But there's a lot that could go right with that if it was used for the right problems and ethically minded. And so I simply bring that up to say, exponential intelligence, it's on its way. And as one of my team members said, it's not AI coming for our jobs. It's people effectively using AI coming for our jobs. Now, what's next in computation? The spatial web, what's that? This is a quickie. It's the recognition that seven years ago, we had a quiet maelstrom of kids actually playing outside, <laughs> right? Where are you going? The river. How come? To catch a video game guy. 
okay, right, is like bittersweet. But the takeaway was the physical and digital world can merge and be better together, but what they require is an open decentralized standard so that these universes aren't exclusively brought to us by single walled garden ecosystems, right? Pokemon Go was amazing, but you were living in Niantic's walled garden, right? What we're starting to see, this is an example from a couple years ago online where somebody in about an hour took Apple's augmented reality kit, the Unity game dev framework, and the LiDAR sensor on a phone, and created their own matrix-like overlay in their apartment. Why? No reason. Fully business case free. But it was a demonstration of what was possible in laying digital information over a physical environment, and then federating the data management right across a decentralized Web3 base, AKA property rights, but online. AKA, this is my apartment, not your apartment. I get the digital bit part, you don't. Now what's interesting here, okay, is this is manifesting in worlds where the physical becomes digital, right? This company, game company in Shanghai threw a fleet of drones up to do what? To create a QR code. I talked to the CTO, he said, well, if it's good enough for Olympic rings, it's good enough to push an app. <laughs> and I thought, oh wow, they pushed two million downloads that night. Now, governance, regulation, anyone? FAA, right? It's the Wild West right now, but it doesn't mean we're not gonna find a governed and regulated version of that. Here's a picture that's just for the lols. It's uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos with a startup we've talked to called Haptex. Technology that lets you feel the metaverse, right? It's hot, it's cold, it's soft, it's wet, it's prickly, right? The idea being that this need not be limited exclusively to sound and voice, right, to, to visuals and the rest. Okay, folks, land in the plane. We're gonna have five furious minutes at the end of history, and then we're gonna do Q&A. The furthest star we can see as regards interaction is brain-computer interfaces, right? What's simpler than bits and pixels painted over my eyeglasses or even contact lens, skipping the eyeball and going right to the wiring, which can feel really dystopian and really crazy, and the future always does, and that's okay. For now, this shows up as, as complete toy, because that's how these things show up. This is a game you can actually buy called Mattel Mindflex Duel. If you look here, this is a ping pong ball, and whoever thinks harder hits the other guy in the head with a ping pong ball. <laughs> also mercifully business case free. But remember, these things go from tech to toy to tool. And so as our ability to capture thought matures, we'll be able to help people walk. Right? We'll be able to help people engage. Right? Not with a thousand things cut into their legs, but think about how you used to walk. We've seen an organization out of Israel that's allowing surgeons to perform on people in South America, right? Not by looking at the micro movements of their hand, but by the thought intention of where they want their hand to be, okay? I always like to say my daughter thinks I'm super lame for opening my laptop, double authenticating, weather.com, zip code, because she just says, hey kitchen, what's the weather? Her daughter, my granddaughter will likely say, why do you even need to ask, right? 
because my thermostat adjusts itself because it knows I'm chilly, right? Because it's all baked in. General AI is the furthest star we can see on information management, the recognition that right now we have specialists, right? The thing that drives your car is terrible at chess. The thing that plays chess is terrible at driving your car, right? The thing that paints the sea otter is terrible at writing poetry. But as these things come together, you start to get to what Ray Kurzweil and others might refer to as a singularity, as a digital deity, as a superhuman, and Hollywood wants us to freak out and think they're coming to get us. <laughs> but what I'll tell you right now is, per our research, it's really, it's really patently more unexpected. Here's Tim Urban's Wait But Why comic strip where he says, right, it's all fun and games until it shoots past you and you just don't understand it anymore. Right? Like those rocket ship parts. Do we have native Austin folk here? Long, any Longhorns in the room? This is Edsger Dijkstra, right on. Edsger Dijkstra, who is a prof here, a computer scientist. I love this quote. Might be one of my favorites right now. Because think about it. Think about the amount of breath we spend saying, is it alive? What is life? What does it all mean? And, and leave it to a 25-year-old computer scientist to say, you know what, man? Submarines are merely very useful. We don't need to worry whether it's a fish. And then finally, gang, quantum computing. And for though, because you guys are the AP class and you're thinking this is your last chance to get it, there will be another chance to get it all. <laughs> I, I see what you're cooking. Here's the deal, friends. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. You're like, three stars, too fast. <laughs> We'll go, we'll get back there, we'll go back there. Quantum computing, the last thing I'm gonna do is try to explain quantum mechanics to you with three minutes left, right? I, I wanna have questions, I wanna have conversation, I wanna do Richard Feynman's job, because even he couldn't do his job. He said, listen, even quantum physicists can barely understand, let alone explain, quantum mechanics. But what I'll tell you is quantum computing, the next rabbit out of the hat on compute, dares to solve tricky, sticky problems with physics instead of math. What's that mean? Here's the analogy I like best. You try to do a traveling salesperson problem, right? You try to model somebody's optimal route. My family has an example. We try to see all the holiday lights in Chicagoland each year. There's 50 houses worth seeing. It takes a cloud-based computer solution three hours to crank that optimal route because I tried. So imagine you're UPS or FedEx or Amazon or somebody and you want to crank 5,000. It'll take longer than the life of the universe to optimize that route with math. If you do it with physics, it's a lot more like when you dip your hands in bubbles. When you pull your hands up, the bubbles just form the way the bubbles form because that's physically optimal. That's just bubbles. As my colleague Scott Buckholz says, he's got this great dry delivery. He goes, mind you, the bubbles are not mathematical geniuses. It's like, yeah, no, 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 I get it. They're just bubbles. And so solving sticky, wicked problems with physics instead of math, it's going to open up new possibilities for drug discovery, right? route optimization, supply chains, supply optimization. Oh, my gosh. 
Now, folks, I want to land the plane with three critical calls to action here. The first, anybody here? Have... Oh, thank you, brother. Okay, how do I turn that down? Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Anybody here ever been to London or Toronto? Even? Yeah? Mind the gap. Okay. They mean don't fall in and get squished by the train. I mean mind the inclusivity gap. I talked with a Middle Eastern organization building a city of 2035. They know better than to put LCD screens everywhere. They're going to have expanses of glass that turn opaque as needed so that your smart glasses can project the information because goodness gracious, we're going to bring our own pixels. They get it. They get it. And I asked a simple question. I said, what about the people who don't have the glasses? And I'm not going to kid you. They, they just sort of paused and looked at each other like. <laughs> and I don't say this as like this hyperbolic, like, yikes, like they're doing it wrong. What I'm saying is you got to be mindful that you're bringing everybody along together. Because a world of smart contact lenses, bring your own pixel, everything is amazing if you got the contact lenses, right? The old term digital rights management, that used to be for like content portals, I think that's going to take on an all new meeting in a world where life's happening increasingly digitally, okay? Did it break when I dropped it? That's okay, we're in the home stretch. We'll, we'll use, mind the gap, great. I put in pictures, okay, two. We got to teach our digital children well, right? Okay, I'm, this is even older than my Gen X mojo. This is straight up Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. But we need to teach AIs to do as we wish to do, not as we've settled for having done. To be what we aspire to, not to be what we've been. Okay, this shows up in the form of making sure we're stamping bias out of training data, right? My old friend Raid Ghani testified before Congress. He said, listen, step one is admitting you have a problem. Take these tacit biases, these winks and mumbles, and make it explicit in the training data, not to say rude things, but to give the machine an example of what bad behavior looks like, right? We need to teach our digital children well. And then you all have seen this one, and I don't like it. I'm tired of it. Move fast and break things. I'm here to move far and make things. And that might feel a little bit saccharine, but here's what I mean. In a world where everybody's chasing a 100x venture-backed return, and everything's a race to parabolic madness, and everything's a sprint towards instantaneous results yesterday, right? I think of this proverb. And sometimes it's ascri ascribed to Africa. Cory Booker made mention of it being specifically from Nigeria. I respect quote sourcing too much to know, but I know I love the quote. And the quote is, if you want to go fast, go alone. Right? If you want to go far, go together. Right? And that's simply to say that if we're going to get to quantum computing and a lot of these big moonshots, this isn't going to be the two gals in a garage. This is going to be systemic margin, moonshot, transformational stuff that's going to need a modicum of patience and goodwill. And in that spirit, thank you to my team for helping us go far and not just fast. Y'all rock. Thanks to this team here. 
Thank you. And with that, questions and answers for the next three minutes or however long you'll have me. Three, five, ten. I'm, I'm here for you until Jonathan kicks me out. Do you share the presentation? Hmm? Do you share the presentation? I, yeah, I think I can share this presentation. Yes, sir. I'll double check. I don't want to have to walk it back. But yeah. Yes, sir. Hi. Hey. First of all, thank you so much for that presentation. It was super interesting. Thank you. I'm personally, I'm a student, and I want to go where I can learn as much as possible. And I could be tempted at going to you asking for the future. What I'm more interested to hear about is the data that you use to predict the future. Where do you see the best data coming from, and where should I go in attempt to learn from that? Oh, my goodness. That's a really thoughtful question. I think um, uh, one of the best things you can do is actually talk to like, like first, first principles, primary discussions with the academic institutions and businesses that are making the future. We look at research institutions, venture organizations, and startups themselves to get a sense of where they're putting their money. Because what you tend to find is that the walk and the talk need to align to, to feel like you've got a credible sense. <coughs> the other sources that I find tend to be really useful are look at different global news sources. Because what's zeitgeisty here in, in the United States sometimes doesn't even register in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia or vice versa. So I think global, global news diet plus first principle change makers, you're well on your way. Thank you. Thank you. Great question. Hello, sir. Hey, Mike Paulo. Great job. I really appreciate that you're focusing on tech. I'd love to get your thoughts on um, <clears throat> how do we forecast society, culture, or the planet at a more macro level because technology is is, is like you said, it's just a tool. It's just a tool. And it's really about how it's used, and we can see a lot of negative things can be done, which yep. tends to be the fast thing and easy thing to capitalize on. Totally. How do we stop that from happening? Because we're at an exponential curve here. It's, it's not linear. And the yeah. next range of fuck-ups could really destroy the planet and people. That's right. Let's get your thoughts on that now and maybe in Chicago when I see you there. Well, right on. Thank you, Paul. I'll, I'll tell you real briefly that our, our team sticks to a technology lens because that's our remit. It, it, I think of it more supply side. Here's the shiny hammers that will be used in service of rusty nails. Um, we have sister organizations within Deloitte uh, who are really focused on the more systemic, structural, kind of holistic social futures, planet futures. And we're also going to be revealing a set of dedicated reports beyond IT over the next couple months, starting with space tech, which will be dropping in June. So love to chop it up with you and agree. This is part of the answer, but this isn't the whole shebang. Yeah. Other, uh, other questions, folks? I'm here for you. Yeah. Hi, my name is Henrietta. Hi, Henrietta. Thank you very much. I was just wondering, do you have scenarios for the future, being a futurist? And could you like give us a good one and maybe a less fortunate one? <laughs> Thank you for that. So the scenario planning or traditional foresight work, we tend to do that around um, industry-specific lenses. And so, I didn't expect to do this here, but let's do one. Um, is it still here? Henrietta, I, I swear Henrietta is not a plant, folks, because this is, this is appendix material for Henrietta. So, in the work we did with World Economic Forum, here's the, the rubric we established. What we realized was that virtually every trend that we've ever encountered, whether it's tech or sociocultural or geological, climactic, whatever you want to call it, you can generally bucket it into one of these five lines, right? The, the slope on the lines and the curvature on the exponentials might differ. But generally speaking, you're looking at hockey sticks, straight up and downs, or cyclicals. 
What we found was that that lends itself towards a means of projecting what's probable, and then broader than that, what's possible. And so when you fill it with a ton of everything you can imagine, it's too much. Right? And back to the infomercial joke for those taking pictures, like that's too much. That's yee, too much information. But if you add, and this was our big recognition, Henrietta, if you add a domain-specific filter, I call it the color contact, you can say, okay, so for education, for example, right? Here's a subset of trends we're seeing that manifest in a subset of trends that are positive or maybe a little less positive, right? And so that narrow aperture, that blue in the middle, those are the probable ones. That doesn't mean we say they're happening, right? Imagine being a futurist in a firm averse to making forward-looking statements, right? But what that means is here are the things we want to weight our attention and investment towards, and then here are the corner cases that could, in fact, happen for positive or for negative. We've done this for different domains, information, economy, education, locality, and written reports. But you know, no sales zone, right? But to the extent there was a specific domain you were interested in, I'm sure we could find someone to help. Yeah. Thank you for that. Any other questions? Yeah, hey. Mike, I really have one. I heard a lot of things about artificial intelligence in the last days. What do you think about copyrights? Who owns this created? picture or the, uh, the, um, the um, poetry? Dude, it's, it, well, is that your whole question? Mm -hmm. It's, a, it, it's uh, to be determined. There, there is a real moment of reckoning with IP law right now. Because is it the developer? Is it the developer who built the open source module that the developer used? No, because the open, you know, open source license forbids it. Um, is it the artist who last touched it? Is it the corporation who employs the artist? Um, fascinating governance questions. And, and to be honest with you, the more we study this, the more we realize that these are less and less technology discussions and more and more about trust and ethics. So I, I, I wish I had a more satisfying answer, but TBD. Yeah, thank you, brother. Um, other questions? This is so fun that you're still here. <laughs> yeah. If all of you have questions, they're totally kicking us out. Hi, uh, good Hi. afternoon. Great, great presentation. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I'm an educator at the University of Arizona. Okay. And one of the things that uh, we're curious about, you know, we run online programs and things like that. Uh, with respect to ChatGPT, with respect to AI, you know, we're looking at, you know, what's that next level of engagement for our students? Mm. You know, we have thousands of students taking these online programs. But at some point, you know, we recognize that you can't keep doing it the way it's been done. Yeah. And I think with the immersion of everyone across the globe at the same time being introduced to online education, yeah. they don't exactly have the same reference point as what true online education is. You know, they did the, the Band-Aid to cover the fix. Yeah. But as we start looking toward the 22nd century, um, one of the things that our group is looking at is the metaverse and how it overlays on the university, and we're developing a metaversity framework, if you will. Yep. But what we recognize is that at some point, the AI is probably going to take a more prominent uh, role in the education process because the goal of online learning was to be, provide differentiated instruction. Yeah. But it's still kind of hard to do that when you've got one professor and a group of TAs still teaching uh, a, a finite group. The, the better way to use your 
uh, your reference from the, um, uh, the one with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Right, um, is that there would be one instructor for every student. And the only way you can make that happen is really with AI. Yeah. Um, have you seen any of this occur with you know, maybe some of your clients or whatever? Because we're really trying to figure out what's that next level of higher education. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, super nuanced and thoughtful question. Thank you for it. Personally, I, I haven't. I, I haven't been in client-facing scenarios with educators thinking about this as a tool. As, a, as an adjunct professor at, at Notre Dame, I'm on the receiving end of all the risk notes. Like, here's, how to, here's what not to allow. Here's how to spot cheating. Here's how to respond to it. Um, like regulatory energy. I might recommend a book, and, and this is super nerdy, but it's a science fiction book called The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. He gets a lot of mentions for his book Snow Crash where he coined the term metaverse. Right, 1992. Yeah, right on. Diamond Age, like 1990-something, like seven. It's all about the idea of what would a world-class bespoke education look like in a world where AI delivers... Um, uh, where, where machines deliver mass info to the masses, AI delivers bespoke customization to those who can afford it, right? And then above that, individual human actors, they call them ractors, uh, uh, for interactive actors. The ractors are engaged to actually be there as a human component for the, for the elites. The book studies how it goes wrong from an equity and equitability standpoint, but in that, I think, are the seeds for what should go right. And, and I think the only other thing I'd say is calculators in schools. I remember in the 90s for us, it was all about if they're using calculators, they're not only math. I think staging kids' use of this is going to be critical and forcing them to show their work. I know one of my classes or colleagues said he's going to in-classroom handwritten essays until we can figure out how to make sure they're not copy-pasting Gen AI. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thank you. Any other questions before I get kicked out? Um, yeah, hi, I'm Eileen. Um, I work in digital product. And um, when I look at those slides, all I think is I'm never going to be able to build the right thing in time. Like, I'm gonna, all my things are completely like 10 years ago now. So <laughs> from a practical perspective, right, what does Deloitte do around, you know, um, implementation considerations? And, you know, what, what do the best companies do to not become dinosaurs as you kind of look forward? What, what's the framework? I think... I think the framework that we're seeing, and, and I don't mean for the following word to feel kind of eye-rolly, but the framework we're seeing is ecosystems and orchestration. And what I mean by that is simply, it used to be build versus buy, right? But even when you were buying, you were buying somebody's singular built something. What we're starting to see more, kind of like the blocks I showed earlier, the, the Danish block company, is that companies are saying, hey, let's string together a platform that from its DNA is cloud native and all the parts can be swapped. Because one piece of our research, the typical half-life of emerging tech is down to two and a half years. And so to go whole hog on any one thing is to be behind, as you said, by the time you launch. So it's really all about platforms and, and coalitions or ecosystem partners who are owning the swap outs for you. So you're saying like, I use XYZ platform, they figure out which widgets are in the platform. That, that's the, the broadest trend I'm seeing. Thank you. Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, Henrietta. 
I'm curious, your take on privacy and human rights. Ooh, yeah, that's big. The biggest, right? I mean, people first, right? Um, so, this is less a, um, like, of the moment response and more of a what I've seen over the years response is that privacy tends to be a bit of a red herring or, or a bit of a, a, a slippery term because what you tend to find is that privacy isn't a zero or one proposition. It's more of a sort of a, a nuanced shades of gray proposition specifically activated by um, the context that you're in. So let me give you an example. My old mentor, this gentleman named Glover Ferguson, he's, he had this example from 20 years back, but I think it still holds. He says, if you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, please take off your shirt, the microtransaction in your head is, I'm going to take off my shirt in exchange for health. Right? I'm going to get health care for that violation of privacy. Now, if you go to a consumer electronics store, they say, take off your shirt. Right? It feels totally different. And so one of the things we're starting to see is that organizations of all stripes, um, and particularly we saw it early and often on some of these devices, they're doing away with the monolithic end user license agreement. Right? Remember like five, 10 years ago, we spent a lot of time like page one of 70, except you don't see those as much anymore. Why? Because that big binary doesn't cover the nuance. And, and from a legalistic standpoint, companies themselves don't want to be on the wrong side of that, that mea culpa. And so what you're seeing is a lot of like, ask not to track, allow this once, okay here, but not here. That's kind of how privacy is starting to manifest now, is it's a la carte exchanges of value, or as we're kind of been calling it casually, transactional trust. I, know, I mean, I don't know how satisfying that is or isn't, but that's sort of the trend we're, we're watching. Thank you, Henrietta. You guys are the best. You folks are, sorry, Midwest, I say guys too much. You folks are the best, and I'm grateful, and thank you for hanging. All right.